Welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty on video. It's politics and parenting where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. How are you? I am doing good. Uh, the video thing has me a little thrown off, but sorry, right. you get used to it. Everybody... Just gotta look at look at the camera in the eyes. Yeah, I don't know. Staring good soul. I don't know who to look at. <laughs> I'll look at my books in the background. That makes me there happy. You go. There you go. <laughs> How was your week? What have you been working on? Uh, it's been good. I I got our website uh, mostly up and running. So um, MadisonRepublicans.com. Be there. Uh, it's this little platform I've been working on. And um, I'm basically trying to wrap my campaign website um, content editing into a, a multi-platform thing. So um, the, we're, the, we're the guinea pigs. Uh, and uh, you can go there. You can RSVP for our first event in January at Giuseppe's. And uh, it's free. You know, you can obviously buy food at Giuseppe's, but we're not going to take the cash for that. We just <laughs> hope you can show up and, and uh, learn some more and um, get this faction going. Yeah, no, that's exciting. I'm very excited to get that out. Hopefully we'll get it live by the end of the week and uh, start getting our advertisements and everything out. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. So uh, have you been uh, checking Twitter lately? (laughs) Yeah, I've been checking Twitter. You know, mainly, you know what I do? I try to ignore so many of those different things. Like I call it Mm -hmm. like distractions or noise, but sometimes some of them are like, so loud i have to like peek you know and the the twitter files as they've been called is is one of those things and i think it kind of ties into a lot of what i've been studying and reading about so um you know just like just the corporate control right and and people trying to use their positions of privilege in order to get the desired outcome that they want yeah i mean essentially like we went from a, a place where corporations were limited um, in time and opportunity by the state um, to a place where corporations are, you know, they live forever now. And the power they hold is that of an individual citizen, realistically, um, but with the backing of like a dynasty behind them, a monarchy behind them. They're essentially, you know, sovereign foreign powers. Um, And so, you know, with the you know, the Twitter files, we see that they have significant influence on our elections. You know, some could say they were meddling to a degree in our elections. But if we think of them as a sovereign power with, you know, individual citizen rights, they're just kind of, you know, doing their thing. We shouldn't be surprised at all, realistically. Well, see, this is the thing I've always thought about. Like, do they have that much power? Because I, in kind of the circles that I tend to visit in, there's certainly, I mean, I'm addicted to Twitter uh, for better or for worse. Like, and, and, you know, like not just on the politics side, like I've learned a lot just from following people that are find are interesting. And um, there's a book recommendations, website recommendations. Like there's a, an amazing aspect of learning that I is probably what keeps me coming back. But I find like, I'm probably the only one, maybe you are, are very active on Twitter, but I find that in my general circle, like very few people are actually on Twitter. So, um, I mean, like there's kind of that ability for it to fester and for it to, to get content out there. But at the end of the day, like not a lot of people are on Twitter. So would you say that it has as much influence as, as Twitter would like people to think that it has uh, in certain situations? 
Well, I mean, are we talking about, we're talking about Twitter now versus like Twitter four years ago or, you know, when they were kind of, you know, playing with these, you know, the election idea, right? Or two to four years ago. Um, I think there were definitely more people on Twitter back then. I think there are less, you know, Donald Trump being on Twitter drove a lot of people there. Donald Trump leaving Twitter got a lot of people off of Twitter, you know, uh, for better or worse. I think Twitter is a fantastic place, like you said, for education, for learning, and for connecting with people who want to have a long form discussion, but through these short little <laughs> tweets, as we call them. But, you know, it, it's Micro more posts. of a place to connect more than anything else um, and learn about uh, one another. Um, does it have the same influence anymore? No, but the influence is different not less than um, because if your if your brand shifts from a large you know populist brand where it's to the everyday citizen to a more intellectual small brand where it's like maybe a tiny republic um, you know they can still wield the same amount of power throughout the country realistically mm -hmm. um, if they're managed properly which you know I think that is yet to be determined if yeah. Elon is going to manage them properly. Um, you know, we've, talked, we've, we've talked a lot about populist leaders lately and Elon fits the category. You know, um, he's very knowledgeable in what he knows and he's somewhat erratic in his behavior when it's around something he doesn't. And he's constantly trying to tell us that he's right. Um, that's a, that's a clear sign of a populist leader. Um, and, you know, a dangerous one, perhaps, you know, not to say like he's a bad guy or a dangerous person, but when you give somebody power that doesn't really deserve that much power, I think he's, he's you know, he's up to his eyeballs in power right now. And I don't think he really knows what to do with it. And I think that's part of the problem. Um, it can be dangerous. Well, and his incentive, his incentive with the power too, isn't to like fix the government kind of like that we're trying to do. Like his incentive is to make back his $44 billion that he's dropped on this. And then with, you know, whatever interest he can get on top of that. So he is a populist leader, but is kind of, we might think that he's there to save free speech and maybe there's, that's kind of an ancillary thing, but I would say at the end of the day, his motivation now is to get back his, his, uh, his investment in this property. Yes, that tends to be somebody's motivation when they spend, you know, that amount of money, right? Um but I would, say, you know, I would say with people like this, you know, and history tells me from reading about people like Vanderbilt and Carnegie and Ford, man, they are very competitive. And yet, yes, winning their money back is great, but winning public opinion, man, owning the libs and and becoming that, you know, gravitas leader that's really what they're after in a lot of circumstances um and they kind of feel like well if i can just if i can win public opinion then money will follow i'll figure out that means i'll be successful so that will be my focus you know mm -hmm. yeah i can see that no that's a good point to, to you know i think so often we kind of think of people in it of in sort of their own little spot but when you bring back the vanderbilt uh ford like you can see a lot of similarities in terms of these are very successful people um, that are able to get people around them to do things that they, that the, that like the Vanderbilt wants them to do, that the Ford wants them to do. And like, that's a, that is such a key skill that I think very few people have um, and is something unique that he's going to bring to this. Yeah. And, you know, you, you look back and um, you know, I like to tell people like, 
what we're going through with this transition, you know, I like to call what we're in the tech age, you know, and where we're going, you know, I want it to be the reform age, you know, uncap the house, you know, citizens united and, and term limits, right. You know, we need to reform what's going on, but you know, that's really yet to be determined. Um, But what we can do is we can look back to places in history that match kind of where we are. And I, I point right to the Gilded Age, into the progressive era, right? The Gilded Age was this age of communication and industry, um, technology. It like, you know, we had the cell phone, the railroads, they connected us more. It built this big industry, which created this big finance, which created wealth inequality and a rise of socialism and communism and anti-Semitism and all these different problems, political corruption. And we look Mm -hmm. there and we go, hmm, Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? You know, and and we and then we can look ahead to the progressive era and like how they combated it. And I would say they made a lot of mistakes or maybe not mistakes. Maybe just like that's where it needed to go then. Right. For mm-hmm. the moment. But realistically, where we're at is is different. And so I think what they did back then is they kind of they vertical vertically integrated like the whole process. Right. Everything was about consolidation, yeah. consolidation of power, consolidation and it, you know, it was for consumer ease to make people comfortable. The standards of living had been raised from the Gilded Age, and they were trying to spread that out to as many people in the country as possible, while still, you know, having this federal, uh, you know, government that can keep us safe from abroad. And I think that they gave a lot of power to corporations. They gave mm-hmm. a lot of power to government, but they took it from the people. Right. And so we're in in both in the economy and in the government. And I think where we're at now is a place where we kind of need to reverse that a little bit. We need to we need to reform those those legislations and whatnot and move our our, you know, check the corporate power, check the government power with the power of the people realistically. And, you know, that's why Elon can't be a real populist because he's not leading the people. He's leading a very small group of people, an intellectual group of people, right? And and they're kind of like a little republic if you will, and they're going to wield their power against the government, you know, in the name of the people, but not truly for the people. Right, for themselves to get what they want. Um get their 44 billion dollar no, investment back. Yeah, get their 44 billion dollar. <laughs> this is the, the talking about the gilded age and sort of the um, the problems with power distribution, like it goes back to what you've been saying since the first time I met you, like we're trying to just rebalance it where you've got spinning plates and it's it's all kind of out of whack. And the reform isn't to knock one whole plate off and to get rid of it. It's to just sort of it's to shift things back to where they should be so that uh, we can kind of function more properly. Um, and this is this is kind of make, reminding me of this when I'm reading in the Senate, my or the Senate history book. Um, it there's around this the Gilded Age time. This is where a lot of the, um, I would say the political structure in the Senate comes into play. Like uh, Bird is talking about how you get a bunch of um, Republicans in charge, and they sort of realize like if they could c- control the committee structure more, you could actually have work through uh, and get more unified governmental control where instead of you've got squabbling factions and yeah, nominally you're all in the same party, you actually, um, if you can get the party control, you can uh, ram through sort of party uh, bills that favor that. And so he just talks about how 
the um the, they come up with this whole committee structure where you get to decide what committees you'd like to be on and so the but the people who are in leadership who name that they can have they can influence that and so you you want to not really suck up to but you want to uh be on the right side of the leadership in sort of your party when they get into power so that you can get on those committees that you want to. And I think, you know, we see so much now where um, everything can happen on a party line vote, or it's a kind of a, a bill that people don't really like, but they're able to, the party is able to push it through because they are able to control the party structure internally. And they give you the committee assignments. And, um, and it, we're seeing a lot of squabbling right now, with on the Republican side for the upcoming congressional camp um, concession, because yes, you're going to have enough votes to elect a speaker, but people are kind of upset with, um, with McCarthy and they, they don't really want to vote for him. And he's, he said like, I think I read today, he said like, we're going to waste a majority. Um, but really what it is, it goes back to the, sort of this rebalancing where people are kind of upset with the, the party structure and they're upset with the fact that the top-down leadership just controls everything. And so they're starting to, exercise their uh, their ability to say no to top-down party control so i'm curious to see how this infighting goes if if the people who said they will not vote for mccarthy as the speaker of the house if they're going to stick with that or if they get their arms twisted or you know something comes out of it where they get some kind of concession that they're able to sleep at night but you know well this is an interesting fight where we're trying to rebalance internal party politics well i mean i think realistically, I don't think you're going to get any type of change with anybody there. You know, I mean, I think it, the whole process is already, it's the Republican or the Democratic Party. I mean, I think mm -hmm. where people kind of fail to see where the problems are is that the government is realistically controlled by two corporations, and that is the Republican Democratic Party. They make the decisions, mm -hmm. and, and power has con been consolidated down to the executive, um, and then it's been consolidated down to the, you know, administrative state, along with the you know, speaker and the leader of the Senate. And you talked about how, you know, they did that back in the Gilded Age. They started this process and it's continued for, you know, a hundred years now to the now we got to the point where you just have like four people in charge of the whole country. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and, and so I found it interesting. You're talking about the, you know, the, the speaker of the house. I posted in our uh, Madisonian group, hold on. Um, Justin Amash has been like on Twitter, you know, advocating, hey, make me Speaker of the House because he doesn't you don't have to be a, a sitting member. Right. But That's he's right. got some very interesting points that I think that, you know, are, you know, worthy of talking about. And he says that if he was Speaker, he would break the corrupt power structure by letting elected represent representatives legislate again. Man, do I agree with that. He did not mention uncapping the House to give, you know, regular citizens a voice again. But, you know, um, he said he'd push for sing single issue bills, right? L uh, let committees work through bills without interference. Ensure rules are followed and not regularly suspended, waived or ignored. Um, allow amendments from the floor. Give members adequate time to review bills. Ask for reported, recorded votes and end proxy voting. Now, I... I like a lot of those. Now, what I'll say is if Justin Amash walks into the House of Representatives tomorrow and does all of that stuff, he's going to be in for a rude awakening because the people in Congress are not qualified to handle that type of responsibility, which is why it's been taken away from them. Um, I yes. think, I, you know, it's not to say that it doesn't need to be done. It needs to be done with a larger societal move, a reform move, right, where we mm -hmm. lift up people from our community, 
to educate themselves on what's really going on, to know how to do the job, then get elected to office, then do all that stuff and trust like regular people with the power as opposed to the corrupt oligarchies that are there now. Right. If you bring in Amash and he comes in and he does these reforms, you're just kind of shifting the power to Amash now because he would probably realize, like you said, that this may not be the best idea with this uh, current uh, membership. So, you know, then it just becomes now he's the speaker and he's going to wield it, uh, whatever power that grants him um, to maybe to to make things better, but but probably not. I mean, so here's the thing. You would think Amash would know, right? He's been in Congress much more recently than I have, right? I mean, he should know better than me. Uh, And maybe there's information he knows that I don't know. And maybe I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm willing to be that. But, you know... I think maybe a gap of history, maybe uh, unknowing some things. I mean, I think the House thing, expanding it is really important to understanding Republicanism. Um, And that's where Justin Amash is kind of talking about is is allowing people the opportunity to legislate for themselves where right now they're not. I mean, it's basically Nancy Pelosi. And when it's not Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi, it'll be Kevin McCarthy or whoever else is at Paul Ryan when he was there. You know, it did. Regardless of party, the parties have consolidated the power, you know, and and they're just fighting to get that power. And then the rest of us are just left to follow orders, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to support the Godzilla versus Mothra and clean up the destruction. And and it's not to say that, like, our government is completely failed, right? It hasn't. You know, there's lots of ways that we can make change. I mean, especially at the state and local level, there's lots of opportunities still. But that opportunity is kind of slipping away with each passing year. You know, the more, you know, there's an emphasis on fundraising as opposed to, you know, ideas, the more Mm. you're going to drown out regular voices and lift up, you know, wealth and with wealth follows corruption and i think that's what you've seen in the in the government and the federal government and i'm afraid that's what we're going to see at the state and local level i mean we're already we are let's face it is is already there right it's just yeah. it's just maybe not as different different kind of scale it's, it's, it's not know, as controlled developers, by the corporations yet no. developers uh putting in their preferred candidates so that they can get the development they would want in areas that people don't want development Yes, yes. Uh, so, um, but so I have, uh, I've been reading a couple really good books I wanted to share with you. So no. I read Man of Iron, uh, which is a Grover Cleveland biography. This is the second Grover Cleveland biography I've read. And I read the, uh, I think I mentioned it last week, the the Triumph of William McKinley. I finished that by Carl mm-hmm. Rove. Absolutely fantastic dive. And, you know, again, connecting that Gilded Age to like what we're going through you know, there was they there was corruption because it was controlled by the party bosses, which essentially like if we compare that now, that's like our regular local parties combined with the PACs, like those t- two mm-hmm. things together are the par- party boss and they control the candidates. Um, and what the McKinley did and, and Grover, you know, was kind of fought the party bosses as well. And they kind of did the same thing. They moved it to more corporate power. 
right? Because now advertising became more of a big deal. Fundraising mm-hmm. became more of a big deal. And, you know, you ran a bigger campaign, you reached a larger amount of people, you needed more money to reach them, which justified the spending. Um, but it took it off of the local state levels in the party bosses, and it moved it to the big GOP tent into the corporate, you know, sponsorships, essentially. Um they thought they were doing something good. And realistically, at the time, they were. They were they were fixing a lot of corruption. They were just like moving it from one place to another, though. <laughs> and I just think, you know, I think particularly like books like this are like really, really important. Uh, people out there writing them right now, I think are completely aware. I mean, there's topics in here. We've talked about it recently. Bimetallism, which is, you know, to talk mm-hmm. about uh, silver and, go- and the gold standard. Um, they talk about, uh, you know, reforms trust busting corporations getting out of control i mean there's just a lot of stuff that meshes with what we're going on what's going on in a world today and i think we need to start to look back there yeah no i I think um that's what i got from the um james madison book that you know it's it's a more recent take so even though it's uh james madison from a long time ago like the the flavor of it the coloring of it is sort of a modern gloss on it which is is interesting like to get that kind of perspective um and to sort of to try to see him with our own eyes i mean like obviously it's a different situation with different circumstances so that it's only so far that that goes that way but you know when you can bring lessons from the past up to the to my current times like i think that helps us a lot yeah and another one i'm reading this one here so william jenny bryan right mm-hmm <laughs> So few people even know who this guy was, right? And he's kind of this, man, he is a character. I'm I'm just like 125 pages into this thing right now. I just got into it today. But I tell you what, it's 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 interesting. I mean, he's definitely a populist, um, but he's you know, he's got this What was his what was his nickname? The boy child of Nebraska or something? What's uh, was it the well, I don't know. The book's called A Godly Hero, right? His dad was a pastor. I think his his uh, brother was a minister. I can't remember the right terminology. Um, but and he, you know, he he kind of preached, right? He was known as this great mm-hmm. orator, but um he maybe wasn't the smartest person. I mean, he wasn't super highly educated, he didn't read a lot. Um, but he could speak, man. I there's a mention of him in the McKinley book where he actually read of speech and people like walked out because it was so bad because he just, he wasn't a reader. He didn't read a lot, but he was a speaker, right? So like when he was on the floor and he was speaking from, you know, his diaphragm and whatever off the top of his head, he was in his comfortable space. But when he was reading prepared marks, like he was really off his game, Um, which, you know, I can relate with that to a degree. Although I've gotten better with my public reading just because I've been practicing more. (laughs) The key thing. I think uh, Obama's like that. Like you can tell when he's kind of like riffing and going out the cuff and, and sort of being that poet versus um, when he's kind of reading off the teleprompter, like this is a, there's a, a big difference in that. Maybe it's, maybe it's um, no, maybe it's when he reads from the teleprompter, he's able to like really get through it. But when he's got to speak extemporaneously, there's a lot more pauses and things because he's really trying to like think it and write those lines as he's going. So I think, you know, there are different skills in terms of uh, being able to, communicate your ideas right and i mean it you know that i I feel that way about myself you know i mean when i speak in public is like when i'm off the cuff i feel like yeah here we go when i start to like have to like make sure i hit these certain points i'm just overthinking and 
bumbling and bumbling and you know talking points you know (laughs) i mean i'd much rather just riff right i mean sticking to my talking points it's so limited you know like (laughs) that's why i'm not a great politician i guess you're a politician you have people to vote (laughs) my book yeah yeah so the um i mean he's a populist right and and you know Mm -hmm. we talk about populism a lot here and i think that he was a progressive populist. Um, he was trying to move the country forward through this, you know, um, and, and realistically, he was a free silver man. Um, I've been reading a lot about that lately. Um, I think it, it fundamentally changed our economy, you know, moving to the gold, you know, kind of just getting rid of silver, moving to the gold standard, and then eventually, you know, the the Federal Reserve Act and, you know, the the New Deal we ended up with in, in after the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. yeah big i mean huge huge changes that we're still well the people want to go back to the gold standard I, I like it uh yeah i think it's complicated That's... well i mean i mean again if you go back to the gold standard i mean gold's still limited right that was the problem right, no it's it's like deflationary i mean uh, it yeah. would be a totally you would you would have to rethink the whole economy which maybe is good you know like talking about reform like sometimes you do have to to go back to things like that or well, to try different things but but i so, i just think people would don't haven't really fully thought like they've thought it's like step one and go back to gold standard, but they haven't thought like two, three, four, five. So, I mean, I, I read that uh, Milton Friedman thought that the passage, basically moving on to the gold standard was a huge mistake. Um, I think it was the bills like 1890, I don't know the year somewhere in the Gilded age, right? We, we passed this bill of that and, and we went back and forth. We had the free cornage, uh, the, the Cornage Act, we had the the Sherman Silver Act or whatever, a Purchase Act. Um, so we were kind of flip-flopping there for a little bit, but he he kind of basically said it sent the economy into this, you know, up and down, you know, uh, situation that was more volatile than it should have been, realistically. And we've never really recovered, um, and which which is why I like the idea of the Bitcoin and the competing currencies at the state level, right? Because I think what you do is you start to like, you start to find that secondary currency because I don't think just switching to silver is the answer, right? I don't think that is the answer for the future. I think, you know, you went from being bimetall- uh, uh, that uh, bimetallism, silver and gold, to being gold, to being a fiat currency system. And I think whatever we move towards, has to be like the new thing. We're going to eventually transfer off of it at some point in time. It's a, we're in a transition phase, right? This is about, you know, test marketing and competing and figuring out what idea is the best so we can then consolidate that, grow larger, vertically integrate and become a bigger and better, you know, uh country and 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 uh and nation. Maybe we'll end up on the moon and Mars, right? And then eventually we'll have to do it again. <laughs> See, that's why you, you digital currency wouldn't work on Mars because the, the bandwidth is just so bad to go from the Earth to, to Mars. <laughs> well, you know, maybe they'll have new metals on Mars that'll be the new uh, bimetallism. You know, you they'll go. find that. Well, they'll find that. You never know. <laughs> that's that, see, that's the great thing about like history is like when you start to like read history and you place your yourself in certain moments, you just you you like you place yourself in like 1700 and then you go. Try to imagine 
being on the moon and you go, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you just like, you move yourself forward and you go, all right, try to imagine being on Mars. That's not so impossible now. Right. (laughs) And and there's something that's even bigger ahead that we don't even know yet that we'll get there as long as we keep working and we keep, you know, trying to be human beings, adapt and grow, which is what we're supposed to do. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So parenting segment, John, you got some uh, parenting talk for us today. Just a fun anecdote. And I mean, I'm still trying to like figure out what might be the best response for it. But so my two, two of the kids are doing this secret Santa thing where they write letters to other kids. um, And the idea is they do a couple throughout up leading up to Christmas. And then after Christmas, there's like an epiphany party and they'll give a small gift to this person that they've been sending letters to. Um, but part of it is that, but also part of it is actually to practice penmanship, but the two, so it's, uh, Leo is the third and Rose is the fourth and they're about first and sixth and kindergarten. So they're working on this and it, I guess they didn't really want to do it or something. So they promised future candy canes to William, who's the second oldest and is a better writer so that they wouldn't have to write these letters and they could get it done. So it's just like, it's, it's just funny to see kids like a uh, living off a of credit at such a young age. Like, you know, like the fact that you're, you're spending candy canes you don't even have yet, but you think <laughs> you're going to get because it's, it's Christmas season. They're likely going to show up um, so that you don't have to, to copy five lines on a piece of paper. It's just like, it's, you know, like, what do you do in that situation? It's- so anyway, like, my my Katie made them go back and actually write it themselves because she wants them to work in the penmanship. And there's the kind of also, you know, if you're going to write letters to this person, it should really be from you, but Andy Kane currency, right. They have, there you go. I mean, it's just, it's such a natural thing to be invented, right? Like when somebody talks about stuff like that, you know, I don't say that, you know, somebody created it or whatever, or invented it. It's like, it was discovered. It was always mm-hmm. there. It's just part of human nature, right? I mean, that's the fascinating mm-hmm. thing with capitalism. You know, lots of people say it's an economic system. And I go, mm, it's not. It's an observation of human behavior in the marketplace. That's what capitalism is. <laughs> yeah. And no, like know, I mean, like that's like like flight. Like you no know, one really invented flight. You just sort of discovered this principle that if you move fast enough, the air tends to flow in a particular way, and you can actually harness that to uh travel long distances. Ah, information, harnessing power and being able to progress us forward. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the uh the tough thing with, you know, I've been going through with, you know, parenting is just it's the transitions. You know, it's the mm-hmm. we talk about the transitions in our society, but man, the transitions for kids. I so I've got uh a transition from like that pre-k to kindergarten phase where you know now you've got like more independence more responsibilities Mm -hmm. the communication is changing we form we're forming sentences and paragraphs now where before you know we just kind of ran and grabbed and pointed and and used words and then i've got that like middle school to teenage year you know that you know 12 13 where they're kind of getting into that teenage years and and each one of those segments it's again it's communications changing right because before it was influenced by me now it's influenced by society kids at school teachers all these different outside things and it it makes it difficult as a parent to guide them right you want them to be you need information from them 
we need to give information um, to help them throughout. And uh, I don't know, it's just something I'm struggling with, uh, you know, as a parent. And and part of that is I, you know, I probably work too much. I don't spend enough time, you know, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But I like, I'm sitting here, Mr. Balancing the government guy going, all right, well, can my kids take my neglect just a little bit more <laughs> so I can help fix the government and then I'll be able to give more time to them later? I don't know. Maybe. Um, no, I mean, it's a balancing act. That's for sure. Just trying to find it out. That's yeah. Why I, I don't know. Family, I, like, honestly, family dinners is probably the the best thing you can do. Like, um, I mean, my dad, my dad just retired. Actually, that was what he did this past week. He could have retired from his government job. Um and he's going to find another job after this. But like, you know, one of those things growing up was that he really, um, and it was weird doing this ceremony because they were talking about like the travel he used to do. And I guess I remember this growing up, but, you know, like he had to travel every once in a while, but like he really made an effort to like be home for family dinners pretty much every night. And I think that was just a, so important. So, you know, you yeah. can find like that, that ability to to be there consistently. Um, yeah. I think kids just thrive in that yes not that it solves all the problems but no and, than- and you know dinner is dinner's hard because like all of our schedules and like when we eat and whatnot mm-hmm. um i i try to do like more independent things with the kids uh you know with julia i read books uh we go to the coffee shop you know read talk whatever um with oliver we're building the lego set and stuff um I used to get out and play basketball and stuff with them. Maybe I, I need to do that again. I need to get my body active again. Um, and with the twins, you know, they sit while I work all the time. They like, they're fascinated. They love to listen to daddy do poetry or read books, right? Like mm-hmm. they don't care if I'm reading the Grinch or if I'm reading the Federalist Papers, right? Because it's all about rhythm, guys. Like reading is just, it's just about rhythm and you can make it sound cool for kids to enjoy. And then uh, mm-hmm. they're they're learning their letters. So like, I'll, I'll write out like all their letters or whatever, or words, or I'll give them a book and I'll be like, here, copy these words down and whatnot while I'm, you know, on my computer writing an article or, you know, uh, sending invoices for hard hits or something, you know? So, um, but I do find it's still difficult to maintain that consistency, you know, because sometimes yeah. I'm just like, daddy doesn't have time for this. You know, daddy's just a little, Ugh. but you know, we try, we try. <laughs> That's all you can do. <laughs> all right. Fantastic. Uh, so that was a good episode, John. What did you think? Had the video. Great. Can't wait to, can't wait to sign up for uh, the Madison Republicans January meeting. Oh yeah. And, uh, Madison and- Republicans.com. And we need we need to get some more subscribers for politics and parenting as well. Now, a big announcement, right? My wife has decided to join and start writing. So now we've got a father's perspective, another father's perspective. Now we've got a mother's perspective. We write about parenting. We write about politics. We've got all of this stuff uh, under one uh, under one roof. Uh, lots of interesting uh, articles for people to subscribe to and uh, like and share. Yeah, tell your friends. (laughs) All right. Peace and love.